Hi, everyone, and welcome to Content People. Tune in to hear from creatives, leaders, and experts in various media. I'm your host, Meredith Farley. I'm here alongside our producer, Ian Servin. Hey, Ian. Hey, Meredith. On today's show, we're talking all about branding with Kelly Corney. Kelly's had a really cool career in media and creative marketing. She's worked at established titans of industry like NBC and the Financial Times. And she's worked at really lean, high-growth startups. Kelly was the chief growth officer at Mightily. Currently, Kelly's a fractional CMO and a consultant based in London. She also teaches a course through Maven called Brand Strategy for Innovation. We really got into the weeds on branding in this one. Sometimes when marketing folks talk about branding, I think the topic can err on the side of nebulous or vague. I find that frustrating. I like details, bullet points, and clear descriptions. Kelly delivers that in our convo today. If you're interested to know what brand really means and how to create one that has staying power, stay tuned. One thing that she touched on that I definitely agree with is that brand is kind of misunderstood by a lot of marketers. I think some people see it really more as a coat of paint rather than something deeper and more intrinsic to the company. And she did such a great job of articulating what brand actually is, why it matters, and how marketers can go about building brand in a strategic way. Yes, I totally agree with that. It's not a coat of paint. It's like part of the foundation. I I totally agree. And I think she makes some really salient points here. And P.S. Kelly is also my friend. Kelly, thank you so much for doing this. This was really, really fun. We hope you all enjoy it. So you've worked as a media owner. You've been in the client role and you have run an agency. So you have a really 360 view of the industry. My plan for this convo is to pick your brain about your career journey for a bit because you've done a lot and then later jump into branding, which you have a ton of expertise and a lot of wisdom around. Uh, But first, how did you get into creative work in the agency world? Like many people, I had a bit of an untraditional uh, journey into my career. I, uh, I went to a liberal arts university, so I was a little bit confused when I graduated. I knew I loved learning and I knew I was a really curious person. But I didn't have a very specific discipline that just led straight into a job title that matched with it. I studied creative writing and philosophy. You know? yeah. I was like, what do we do with this now? Um, I knew I was a creative person, but I wasn't quite sure what shape that would take. Um, and I think also like, like many girls being a young teenager in like the early 2000s, I had this dream job that was like being a, you know, in a business suit, walking in my high heels in a big city, and um, being an editor at a fashion magazine, which was literally every single rom-com that we watched growing up. Yeah, <laughs> I was equally right. I that dream. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so my very first internship, actually, like professional internship, was at a fashion magazine in Chicago. So I was like, oh great, I get to try this. And as soon as I did it, I realized I didn't like it. <laughs> so. Again, I was like, what do I do from here? And like most things, life just kind of pushes you in a direction. I, Because I was living in Chicago, a friend of a friend was like, hey, I work at NBC Universal. We are hiring for this position. I think you should, you should apply for it. Um, so I did. And that was how I learned that I loved advertising and loved media. Um, and my first job was actually in sales, but I was too embarrassed. You know, I thought sales sounded a little bit sleazy. So I was too embarrassed to tell people that I would just be like, oh, I work in advertising. <laughs> uh, but actually, it really taught me how much I, I actually love selling. I'm su- when I believe in an idea, uh, like my favorite thing is to be able to tell people about that and share it with them. So to me, that's all that good sales is. It's just like being really passionate about something and sharing it with people and getting them on board with you. Yeah, so... Thanks for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense as to how you got into it. And I think it'll resonate with a lot of diff- a lot of people. But so for folks who aren't familiar with you, from that point forward, what has been your career journey and what have you done with everything you learned about selling and what you love about media? Yeah, I'll try to make this short because like you started, I've done a bunch of different things, so it could take forever. But basically, I I started my career in you know, the world of media working for NBC Universal. So at the time, it, it was owned by GE. So it was like literally one of the biggest companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I got a really good education in the industry working for them. 
Um, so the ber- first big chunk of my career was doing that. And I worked for NBC both in Chicago and then I moved abroad and, to London and spent about four years working internationally for them. Um, then at that point, I moved back to the US and I was like a little bit frustrated with the corporate world, you know, being really ambitious, wanting to have more impact feeling frustrated with hierarchy and all of the things that can kind of happen in in big corporate environments and got interested in entrepreneurship and thinking about startups. So I just experimented for a little while. I did a startup accelerator. I did a small project um, to launch a sustainable knitwear line. I started an organic tea company. I was kind of just playing around seeing like, what what would I want to do? How can I express my creativity? And I met at that time who would become basically my future business partner, who funny enough, even though I was back in the US, happened to be British. And um, we started an ad agency. And uh, like I said, I was really in this mode of experimentation and I had no idea if it would work or if it would really go anywhere. But um, the end of this story is that it was quite successful. And I spent about five years helping to grow that business. Um, It was 40 employees by the time I left. You know, we were winning tons of uh, awards for our work, had an amazing company culture. Everybody wanted to work for us, getting covered in the press a lot. It was just like this really exciting uh, growth story. Well, and, yeah, sorry. Were you going to say something? Thing, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and then um, from there, I went back to a bigger corporate environment. So um, I went client side. So at this point, I had worked for a media owner and an agency, and then I became the client and ran a large brand and marketing team of about 50 people, um, which was essentially kind of like a creative agency, you know, an in-house agency. Um, And then most recently, moved from the US back to the UK. I am living in London now and uh, to work for the Financial Times for uh, AlphaGrid, which was the, or which is the sort of creative content studio at the Financial Times. Um, So I've jumped around a bit between all three. And I think sometimes that can make people feel like it's a little bit hard to place me in, in what I do. But I actually have found once I'm in a role, it ends up being one of the things people value the most about working with me because, um, I really understand what it's like to be a client working with an agency and an agency working with a client and have been in both of those shoes. Um, and I know, I, I'm sure you know this all too well, Meredith, <laughs> that like uh, that can sometimes be a contentious relationship or it's hard to always empathize with somebody on the other side. Yeah, I can imagine your uh, your knowledge and empathy of the other side just being an incredible asset to whomever you're working with or for. For sure. So you've been at places and had really big jobs where there's hyper growth and they're in startup mode. Like when you're at Mightily, you've been in more established, really big funded organizations like Atria Senior Living. And you've been at places like Alpha Grid within the Financial Times, which is kind of a historical institution. So one first question, is there an environment that you enjoy the most? It's a really hard question to answer. Um because they all obviously have a lot of benefits to them. Um, but I, I think if I was forced to choose, I would say, uh, the, I think the most rewarding thing I've done is build and grow mightily or help build and grow, grow mightily. And um, so that would probably be my answer. You know, I really love, I really love building things. I'm, I get super excited about that. And building things alongside people I respect and just genuinely enjoy being around. So that can, you know, that can obviously happen within a larger corporate setting. But um, I think creating something from the ground up is is a very unique experience in and of its own and, and probably what has been the most fulfilling with, for me. So I think I would choose that. <laughs> but it is a hard choice. Yeah, um, that makes sense. If I had a guess, I think I might have guessed that only because... When you talk about mightily and that building stage, I think about how what you created was in so many ways an extension of all of the amazing things about yourself. And I feel like that's really powerful. Um, but so for younger folks who are starting out in their career, would you steer them in the direction of one environment over the other? Do you think it's helpful to start somewhere in particular? 
Yeah, I'll, I'm going to unsurprisingly give the advice that's exactly the trajectory my career took. <laughs> but I do have some good ways to justify it. Um, I think it's really valuable, if you can, to start with a big organization. And the reason I say that is because you get a really good education in your industry by doing that. So there are just like resources and access that a big company like NBC Universal has that, you know, if you were to go straight into a startup or straight into a small business, you're just not going to learn the same things and you're not going to have the same kind of resources. And particularly for me, you know, maybe there's a lot of other people who identify with this, but I grew up in Kentucky and, you know, there weren't, I didn't have a ton of exposure to like the kind of access and, you know, cultural impact that an organization like that has. And it felt like so world opening to me to be a part of it, to not only like see what can be done through a company that has that kind of history and access and reputation, but also just for myself to like believe in myself, to know that I belonged there, to kind of show up and realize I could not only do the job, but I could do it really well. And to, to know that I could do more than that, that was really affirming and expanding for me. Um, and I, yeah, I think for those reasons, it's a great place to start. I've, I've also seen it on the flip side where when you start out just in a startup or just in a small business, it can it always feels a bit like the Wild West anyway, because people are often making it up as they go. And if you haven't had a more structured experience, then I think it leads to people feeling like always a little bit of a sense of like wandering in the dark and just figuring it out. So to me, I think it's a it's a really strong foundation to build on and a, a great place to start your career. So you feel like the structure or for you, do you think that starting off somewhere like NBC, incredibly established, lots of structure, maybe there's a bit of an intimidation factor because, as you said, like it's not something you were surrounded by. Do you think that in some way maybe that helped you avoid like an imposter syndrome because you proved to yourself really early on that you could, um, I don't know, it's the word I'm looking for, that you could kind of like, you know, you could play on a really big playing field and be successful or no, maybe not. I'm just curious as you're talking. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, in some ways, yes. I mean, I think imposter syndrome is one of those weird things. Like, I feel like it's a, it's like an epidemic. I feel like everybody feels like they have imposter syndrome sometimes. Um, maybe that's just because it feels so hard to keep up, you know, with the way how quickly information comes and, and how fast we're expected to like learn and change and grow all the time, particularly in our careers. I think it just lends itself to everyone feeling that way sometimes. But I do, I do think, you know, maybe there's a grain of truth in what you're saying and that it definitely gave me an injection of confidence early in my career um, that I don't know if I would have had otherwise. But who's, who's to say? We don't know, you know, I have no idea <laughs> what another life would have been like. It's interesting. Yeah. With imposter syndrome, I feel like I've started to just kind of think of it as self-doubt that some people have more than others and everyone has sometimes. And I feel like what you're saying kind of aligns with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I could see it being confidence inspiring as a younger person to be like, yeah, I worked at this really big organization. I got to learn how the structure worked and did fine there and feeling like a confidence that you can be equally successful in other types of environments, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So brand strategy, I think of this as a particular superpower of yours. Let's get into it. So first and foremost, people say the word brand a lot. How do you define what a brand is? Yeah, it's a, it's a great place to start <laughs> because brand has just become like a nonsense word. Um, if I asked five different people to tell me what it meant, I would get five different answers back. We all have different ideas about it. Um, I'll kind of start from the very basics, which is like people often think a brand is a logo or a color palette or a font. And it's it's not. It's something much more foundational than that. Um, me many people have made many attempts at creating one definition for what a brand is. I'll give you mine. 
Um, and it's the, the simplest and easiest thing I've been able to boil it down, or simplest and most essential thing I've been able to boil it down to. I think a brand is just the truth. Yeah. So what that means is when you think about a company's brand, what you're doing is trying to discover what's true about that company and then connect it with people in ways that make them feel something. Good brands make you feel something. I love it. As you say, a brand is the truth. I feel like it like pings something inside of me. I'm like, yes, it is the truth. That is, um, I don't think I've ever heard it described that way, but I can't think of a better way to describe brand. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, especially when I work with companies that are bigger, more well-established brands, there's like this fear that that they come into the process with where they think like, oh no, I'm hiring this brand person to come. They're going to like, you know, go away into a corner and yeah. build this thing and then hand it to me and they're going to change who I am and it's not going to feel like me anymore. And the best way that I've come up with of reassuring people about that is like, actually, my job is the opposite of that. Like you, you kind of know, you, you feel inside of you somewhere what's special about what you do or, or what your, you know, what your company stands for. Because you're you, like I can't do this for myself. I have to have someone help me because no one, no one is self-aware enough. You know, we, we all get a bit like overwhelmed with our own business. It, it's hard to kind of see, see it from an outside perspective but I can do it for other people, right? So it's, um, yeah, being able to come in and, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. Um, well, no, I mean, actually what you're really sparking for me, which I never thought about is the way that, so what's coming to mind for me is, uh, writing even just stuff like, um, so I started a newsletter, a Substack, and writing the about page was one of the most brutal writing experiences mm. I've ever had. And I still hate what's up there. And as I'm going through it, I'm like, why is this so hard for a client or some a friend came to me and have a trillion ideas and be like, well, here's what it's about, you know, type, type, type. And the way that like, right, uh, as you say, like uh, creating things about yourself is sometimes the most brutal because you don't have enough space and you need friends or folks to help you. And I never thought of it in the same way uh, for a company, but the reason like outside eyes and expertise are so helpful for a brand is maybe similar because you need someone with a little bit of distance to really help you extract those kernels of truth. Is that, is that like, what do you think about that? Is that, I think that's, that's exactly the word I would use. You need distance from it. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's with anything in your own life. When you think about understanding yourself or your own problems, (laughs) you need, you like you, you go through an experience, um, I don't know, even if you think about like really big experiences in your life, like a breakup or like things that are very emotionally triggering, you can never see the truth in the moment. You need distance to be able to reflect back. And maybe it's a little bit of a digression, but for companies, it's the same thing. It's like you are so, you know, like your goals, you're working on things day to day. You you can feel it inside of you, but you just don't have the distance to be able to articulate it. And I think that's exactly why outside help is really valuable, especially when you're working on brand. Yeah. Well, so founders and leaders, they are busy, resource-strapped, and I always love the expression that they are building the plane while flying it. And when folks are in that startup mode or in a stretch that feels more like we just need to survive right now as opposed to thinking about thriving, creating a brand or bringing in someone to help them with branding can seem like a nicety as opposed to a necessity. Hmm. How would you advise someone who is like, I want a brand. I just don't have the time or money to really focus on it right now. Yeah, it's a that's a great question. Um, I would tell that person, you're not going to have a successful business for very long if you don't. <laughs> your your brand. So I think we need to talk a little. We need to break it down a little bit more. Um, branding and marketing often get kind of conflated. Yeah, they're not the same thing. Uh, marketing is giving people the right message to the right person in the right environment at the right time. So it's about like frequency and repeating a message over and over again. A brand is the soul of a company. It's, it's why that company deserves to exist irrespective of financial gain. So 
brand is a foundation for marketing, but it's also a foundation for the wider business. Um, and I, I have this little presentation that I give sometimes where I, I show like what a brand strategy is, what branding is, and what a business strategy is, and how and really defining those things because they often get quite conflated. Uh, a brand strategy and a business strategy are equally important. If you only have one, you won't be successful. A brand without a business strategy won't make money. Mm. And a business without a brand strategy is just like one price cut or one copycat product away from becoming irrelevant. So they're different things, but they work together and they inform each other. So if you start to think about brand in that way, then it becomes more of a North Star for your organization or like a rubric that you use to make decisions. So whatever, like if you're talking about strategy, any kind of strategy, it's all about looking at the wide, the vast <laughs> variety of infinite possibility and narrowing that down and making choices. So a good strategy is one where you like, you choose one path and that's your strategy. So your brand strategy is that path for your company. It's your North Star that informs everything you do. So this is how you become a really powerful brand that continues to feel true to people. I think that's really powerful. Sometimes I know there's a perception that brand building is it's expensive, time-consuming, nebulous, soft KPIs. And I know sometimes some people think of it as a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Now, for the record, I don't think good brand work is any of that. Yeah. But to your mind, like what are you kind of started to touch on them, but what are some of the non-negotiable, tangible elements of a brand? Yeah, it's it's a great question because I think this is how most people come into it. It feels like um exactly what you said. But I think when you think back to how we just sort of defined a brand as being a foundational pillar of your business, then, you know, would you ask like if building a company culture or building a sales team or building a business plan were time consuming and nebulous? You know what I mean? It's, I think the important point is that without a brand strategy, you really open yourself up to a huge amount of risk of becoming irrelevant or easily outperformed by a competitor who does understand the importance of it. And that's just the difference between like having a product and knowing that like think of all there are so many businesses so many products so many startups so many th things that are like very similar vying for your attention with all things being equal why do you pick one over the other you know i have two two brands of toothpaste in front of me <laughs> they're exactly the same price which one do i pick yeah you know, that's, that's the power of brand is it gives reason, it gives people a reason to care about you and why you exist. Um, so again, I think not thinking about it this way opens you up to a huge amount of risk and I can kind of break it down and make it more tangible by talking about, you know, what, because e even now we're still saying like a brand is this, a brand is that, but like what actually happens when you create a brand strategy? Yes. I can, can yeah. talk through and, and break that down a bit because I think it's all good to say a lot of these things, but like knowing what the app, yeah, knowing what you do as part to build it is what makes it powerful. Um, so there are three main aspects to building a brand. It's purpose, position, and personality. So I'll kind of define and talk through each of these. Purpose is the change you want to see in the world, irrespective of financial gain. So this is why you do what you do. It's the thing that makes people want to root for you. And it plays a huge role in aligning people to want to come work for your company. Um, it makes people feel a part of something bigger than, you know, the product itself or whatever smaller things that you're doing inside of a company. Um, so a purpose statement should sound something like, we exist to blank. Um, uh, some good examples of this that like everyone will be familiar with. So Nike's purpose statement is we exist to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And if you have a body, you're an athlete. It's a great one. Um, and Google's 
is uh, we exist to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So I think the bottom line with purpose is it's not about what you do. It's about why anyone should care. Um, so next is position. Your position is the space you occupy in your target customer's mind. So you know you have a positioning problem if you ask 10 of your customers or employees what you do and you get 10 different answers back. <laughs> um, or if I ask you to explain to me what you do in one sentence and you can't. And like for everybody listening to this, I would just say pause for a moment and think about that because and think about your own organization and you'll probably be like nodding along with me. Like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, so the risk here is if you don't define your position, other people will do it for you and not necessarily in a way that you'll like. So an example for this might be um, if we're thinking about shampoo, <laughs> uh, the experience of buying shampoo, there's like a million choices and it's pretty, I don't know, I'm sure like you per you've been through this many times, Meredith, just as I have. You're like standing there and you're not really sure what choice to make. It's pretty arbitrary. Um, so are you familiar with the company Pros? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I feel like any millennial woman, especially who's on Instagram, knows what Pros is. <laughs> We've all seen the ads. Yeah, yeah. They're great ads, though. So Pros did something really smart, which was instead of playing in the category of shampoo, which is overcrowded, really nebulous, they created a different category and decided that they're going to play in the space of custom shampoo. So now, if you want a custom shampoo, you only think of pros. And that's a really smart way to think about positioning yourself. It's I kind of call this like the 50-50 rule, and you can use it in any sort of either positioning or like sales process, which is I always want my competition, all of my competition to be in a group together and for me to be in a standalone group by myself. So there, people really only have one of, you know, they only have two choices. They either want the thing that you are, in which case you're the only choice, or they want something else and you can let a bunch of other people fight over that. Um, and there are ways to kind of break this down even more. You know, you can modify an existing category, which is what pros did. So they aren't shampoo, they're custom shampoo. Or you could create an entirely new category that never existed before. Uber is a good example of this. They created rideshare. Like no one knew that that word didn't exist before Uber. So those are some ways that you can kind of, and it gives you a really strong competitive advantage as well because um, there's so much that comes from being first to market that just you get to skip a lot of the mess and honestly makes your marketing dollars more efficient, customer acquisition more efficient, all of those things. Um, so just to break down a little bit, the difference between purpose and position, your, your purpose is more of a long-term thing. So it should last you for about 10 years. I mean, it could last you forever, but I would say like a minute, you want to be thinking that long-term when you're crafting a purpose, your position is shorter term. It should be true for at least the next 18 months. I mean, it can be longer than that, but a position is a little bit more closely tied to a product. Mm -hmm. So that can evolve as you launch new products or your product offering evolves. Um, and a purpose is more just about the company as a whole. Um, and then the other thing I would say that's different between them is while they both can be both of these things, purpose is more emotional and position is more functional. Okay. Um, so, and I think in marketing and branding, this push-pull between emotional and functional is always kind of a again, something that's a little bit hard to wrap your arms around. So I think that that sort of is a nice way of thinking about it. And then the third thing is personality. So this is like literally how you show up in the world. It's what do you look like? How do you speak? It's what gives you a point of view that people can connect with and makes you feel more human. Um, so I like to think about this in, in like, if this company was a person, what would that person be like? Uh, the most interesting brands have tension in them, just like real people do. So, what, for example, I have a friend who is um, like super stylish. You know, she's always showing up in like the coolest outfits and is very fashion forward and modern. Um, but she only listens to old music. 
And that that's an interesting tension. Like that makes me want to understand her more and find out more. So this like tension between modern and nostalgic, you know, a brand that kind of embraced those two things, there's like a lot to play with there. And it makes you like, when you say that, you kind of like perk up a little bit and you're like, ooh, what's yeah. going on there? Um, and a lot of companies fall into the trap of like, just being a lot of the same thing. So, you know, we're trustworthy, we're reliable, we're, we're uh, honest. They're, they're all the same. You're just kind of, it's all one note. You're saying the same thing. So it's not very interesting to anyone and it just starts to lose meaning and it doesn't feel very dynamic or real. So those are broadly the three elements. I think that, you know, personality is probably the least KPI driven part of what we've just talked about. But I think it's hopefully really clear how the others are really tangible, critical parts of building a business. And just to like distill it down to its most essential thing, building a good product or business doesn't mean anything if no one cares about it. And this whole process of building a brand is why anyone should care about what you do. So one other question then. Of the three Ps, I, it sounds to me like there's the potential that one and two, so that would be purpose. And what was the second one? Position. So purpose, position, personality. Does position intersect with business planning to your mind? As you were talking, I thought it might, but how do, how do those two play with each other? Yeah. I mean, it's like I said, it's a bit more functional mm -hmm. you know, than purpose. So it does have a little bit more to do with like the product itself and how you want to think about where it sits in a market. So in that sense, yeah. But like I said before, I think all of these things, to divorce anything about brand from an overall business strategy is to be very short-sighted. Your brand position should be the North Star for your decision-making across everything that you do. So for example, if you are a company that cares about sustainability and you're making a financial decision, you need to kind of check yourself and say, does this financial decision help to support the fact that we are a company that cares about sustainability? If the answer is no, then you probably need to find a different solution. And that's that's really key because we all have had experiences with brands that like just feel kind of gross where, I mean, I think that the secret like unspoken thing behind all of this is that, I don't know, like honestly, I'm sitting here like glowing and advocating about how important branding is, but I have this conflict within myself quite often, which is that like, do you always want your brand to care about everything? And does your, do, you know, is branding really like, does it feel authentic all the time? Do I feel like I'm being manipulated by companies? I think people have these thoughts, especially when um, brands present inauthentically or they say one thing and do another. Um, I remember seeing a lot of things, especially like deep in the middle of the pandemic, where there were a ton of articles coming out about like, does my mayonnaise need to care about human rights, mm. right? Yeah. Where like there are just these kinds of opportunistic stances that companies will take under the guise of branding that actually has nothing to do with what their core brand strategy is. So I think that's where things can really veer off track. And when you, when you do hold, when, when you look at branding as the truth, when you define that really clearly, and then when you make company decisions, using that always as a gut check for literally everything you do, then it will always feel true. It'll always feel authentic. And the people that connect with it will do so in a very real way. And it'll feel meaningful. It's when you create a brand position and you're like, oh, that's just some like marketing stuff that we do. And then go and make decisions that are completely opposite of that. It's both a misunderstanding of what branding is, the power of it. And it starts to create a brand that falls apart and people don't trust and feels inauthentic. I veered a little bit from your question, but I think this does have to do with, you know, it's kind of bringing together like what it means to have a business strategy and what it means to have a brand strategy. No, I think that's helpful. As you're talking, I'm thinking that, or I'm interpreting what you're saying as brand is actually much more 
It is the integral structure of an organization. It's not the paint on the outside of the building that you can kind of change out on a whim. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple more questions for you about branding. One, I'm curious about this. If a company is launching a minimum viable product, do you think that they also need to have a brand established or is that something that can come a little bit later in the process? Yeah, I think this is a pretty simple one. I mean, it depends on what your goal is for that minimum viable product. If you're testing functionality, you don't need a brand. You know, you, if you say you're building an app and you're trying to see, uh, do people get confused with the, you know, how well is the UI working? Are are they kind of taking the actions we want them to take and using it? You don't you don't need a brand. You know, you're you're just trying to you're you're testing and trying to learn about your product. Um, if what you want to test as part of that minimal viable product is like, is this, is it competing against, you know, is it standing up against certain competitors or is it holding the space in the market that we want it to? Um, is it holding the price point that we want it to? Those are things that you would probably want to have a brand established for. So I think it's variable. Um, but all, most often when people ask that question, it's because they're testing functionality or just trying to work out kinks in a product and refine it into what will be the thing that they'll truly launch to market. And I, no, I don't think it's, it's not, it's just not an important factor at that point because you're trying to answer a different kind of question. That's helpful. Thanks. Uh, similar, well, in my mind, do you think that brands matter as much in the B2B space as they do in the B2C space? Yeah, this is a great one. And um, something I've spent a lot of time working in, being in uh, big news organizations that mostly speak to other businesses as their customers. Um, the answer is yes, absolutely. I think it's almost trite to say this at this point, but whether you're B2B or B2C, there's a real human being receiving your message. So I don't know. There's some strange thing that happens in people's minds when they do B2B that they think that they're talking to like a high rise or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's actually, yeah, there's actually a human being who's reading what you've written or getting the ad, right? Um, so there's a real human being there. It's, it's a real person who, like you and me, can't fall asleep at night because they're ruminating on a real problem that they're dealing with every day. And a critical part of building a good brand is deeply understanding your customer's real lived experience and clearly articulating the problems they either knowingly or unlo- unknowingly need a solution for. So f- articulating a problem that a real person is feeling and providing a solution for it, that's, that's what all good brands do. Um, but particularly when you think about the business space, it's super important. And, um, a couple other things I'll say about this. One, a trap that often people often fall into in the B2B space is be, being overly technical. Um, and a good check to kind of see if you're doing this is to think about explaining the, that problem that we just talked about to a non-technical person. So I, as a non-technical person, should be able to understand what you're talking about when you explain to me the problem that your customer has. So like explain it to me as if I'm a bored but smart teenager. <laughs> you know, you you still need to grab my attention and you need to make it simple enough for me to understand. <laughs> Once you're speaking in that language, you know you've fallen out of the trap of becoming too technical, too insider speak because again, you're not speaking to a robot, you're speaking to a human being. And then the second thing I would say is um I find this to be a really helpful framework. To think about what what you're doing, is it a painkiller or is it a vitamin? Ooh, and as a yeah, it's a it's a really nice framework to use. So, as a business, I think you want to be a painkiller, or when you're doing B two B, you want to be a painkiller. So, painkillers are must have must haves. Vitamins are nice to haves. Um, So, for example, if I'm if I have a migraine, I literally can't do my job. I'm I'm stopped. Um, I, if someone gives me something that'll solve that, if someone gives me an IV, ibuprofen, I will pay anything for it because I, I need it. Yeah. Um, 
versus if I want to take vit- you know some kind of vitamins to optimize my performance at work. It's it's not that I don't want that or that I wouldn't be willing to pay for it, but it's just solving a different kind of need. So it's not that you can't be a vitamin, but particularly in in B2B situations, you know, people are willing to pay to solve painful problems. So if you can show them how much if you can identify a problem and then show them how much that problem is costing them, they'll really value the solution that you bring. I love that concept of painkiller versus vitamin. And as you were talking earlier at what you hit on too, I think sometimes where the B2B world can fall a little bit short or miss an opportunity is not investing and spending the time to get to know the person that is the target mm-hmm. demo in that role, which is kind of in line with what you are saying. You know, I think B2C companies, they know they know what time of day their target client or target customer wakes up and like, you know, what music they play first thing in the morning. And so they get such into the details of who is that consumer. And in B2B, I think it, it tends to just be, well, it's the VP of operations at a midsize yeah. company and there's uh, missed opportunities to uh, intrigue and delight those folks. It's like, don't don't we deserve intrigue and delight in our jobs too? That's interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting, this isn't a B2B example actually, but I think it's a good, it's still a, a good avatar to use for it. Like sometimes your target, cons- the person you're talking to isn't actually the person you think you're talking to. Mm. So for example, when I, when I worked at Atria Senior Living, um, you know, the, you, you might think that you're targeting the older adults who are going to move into, uh, you know, a, a living space, but actually they're not the ones making the decision. It's their adult children. So you're actually, you're not targeting, you know, an 80 year old man or woman, you're targeting their children who are like probably in their fifties. So it's a different target with a completely different mindset. And I think this often happens in B2B where, like you said, we think like everybody wants C-suite marketing. You know, we all we want to talk to the top executives who are making the decisions. Well, a lot of times it's the data engineer who's, um, you know, really passionate on, on Reddit and on different forums kind of looking for new tech solutions. Or, you know, there are other people in the organization who are actually the real influencers behind these things. It's not always just who we think the key decision maker is. And it's really worth under, you know, I worked on a project for a little bit um, about this and we're in a similar space and we, we sort of, we narrowed it down and identified, okay, it's not actually the CTO who's making this decision. It's, it's the, uh, the data scientists and what are they like? They love superheroes. They love video games, you know, yeah. like there are all these interests they have that when you start to think about like, oh, well, let's create like a cool gamified experience. Let's do this. It starts to become something a lot more interesting and engaging instead of just the same old boring um, white paper for a, a, a C-suite executive to read, which they're they're probably only <laughs> reading a few lines of or not reading at all. Yeah, they're sent that five times via email by the data scientist who eventually is like, can you please rubber stamp this? And the CTO does. That's that's really interesting. Um all right. Well, I I really want to dig a little bit into your Maven course, Brand Strategy for Innovation. So for anyone, maybe first, for anyone who is not familiar with it, could you talk a little bit about what Maven is and what your course is about? Yeah, sure. So I just started teaching a course, um, like, like you just said, Meredith, called Brand Strategy for Innovation. And um, it's on a platform called Maven. So Maven is just an online platform for cohort-based courses. And I'll explain for a minute what a cohort-based course is. And speaking of good branding, uh, Maven is a fairly young company. They're less than two years old. And um, they created their own category of cohort-based courses, which was not something that anyone was talking about or really existed previously. so good job, Maven. Um, if you think about how online learning has traditionally happened, it is a very passive experience, you know, like Coursia or Udemy or some of these other uh, platforms. You kind of pay a fee, you get a bunch of videos, and you sort of watch them whenever you want. The completion rate is super low for those because people just lose interest. Cohort-based learning is 
it happens real time. It's really similar to like a university course that you would take. There's an instructor, an instructor who teaches live, which would be me. Um, you enroll cohorts of students together. So you are in a, a live course that's happening, you know, on specific days and times with a bunch of other people who are all showing up on Zoom together to attend. And uh, the advantages of doing this is there are, um, you know, not only do you get the benefit of being able to interact real time with an instructor and ask questions and get their knowledge, but it's not just like a lecture happens, you're listening and then you log off. It's a really interactive way of learning. You're getting to meet the other people in your cohort. So you're networking with peers and other people who do similar jobs to you, probably at really cool companies that you can learn from. And um, we do a lot of live workshopping in the course. So I'm kind of presenting concepts and then I'll say, okay, here's an exercise, go do it. And you'll do it with other people in the cohort. So you're kind of learning alongside each other and from each other. And then when the course is over, you walk away with actual work done. So um, it's there's real, you know, you really get something at the end of it. It's not just all intellectual. Um, so it's, I feel really passionately about it. I think it's a great way to learn. It's really reinvigorated me as um, a leader to kind of think about how I present concepts and, and lead, you know, inside of a business, thinking about it more through the lens of teaching and kind of relooking at at it in that way. So that's been really interesting for me. That's kind of what Maven is and how the course works. I feel like I've, uh, I always learn a lot anytime we talk and you have already, <laughs> as I said, like put on a, uh, a branding clinic. So I, uh, I can't even imagine how beneficial that course could or would be. Like what type of exercises would you do with folks? What would they come away with it with, away from it with? Yeah. So I ask everybody to, to come in with a company in mind. So it can either be like the company that you work inside of, or it can be a company you want to launch, or it's, it's really good for, uh, found, you know, early stage founders. I think back to your earlier question, there's this perception that like, and truly it can be quite expensive to hire a full agency team to, um, you know, we've worked in agencies, we know what it costs when you are pretty bootstrapped and you just literally don't have the money. So it's a, it's a good um, solution for that where as a founder, you can really learn about the importance about of you know building a brand, how to build an effective brand. And then you, you walk away basically with a, a platform. You know, you, you've got something down for your purpose, your position and your personality as a playbook that you can kind of launch from. Um, so everybody comes in with a company in mind, whether it's your own. Um, it's also really good for marketers who don't work in brand. Right. So whether you're a content marketer, a product marketer, a growth marketer, if you want to understand um, how, how to be a better brand marketer at the same time, which you know all of these disciplines work together, then it's a really beneficial thing to do as well. And I've also had interest from like venture capitalists and people in the innovation world who are dreaming up and building new companies, but don't necessarily have any kind of education in branding or marketing and want to better understand that side of things. So, um, you know, some of the workshops we do is there's a fun little like word game that people play with each other where, you know, everyone writes down, they try to define their category and write down their position. And then, you have to actually speak it out loud as if you're sitting at a bar having a beer with a friend. And people start getting really tripped up on their words and you can you you start to realize very soon, very quickly, how easy it is to fall into meaningless business speak. Yeah. Which is speaking like a real human being in a really simple way. So it gets you out of your head and being like, ooh, what does a, you know, what would I actually say to people? What makes sense? Uh, that sounds very useful. And as we were talking about it, the concept of founders taking it was making me think about just what we talked on earlier, how kind of integral creating a brand is to creating a business and how if you can allow your business plan and your brand to be 
really symbiotic with each other that you're probably going to make things a lot easier for yourself um, as, as time goes on. Definitely. It's what I advocate for. All right. Kelly, thank you so much. You have been an incredible guest. You have educated me. I'm sure you've educated some listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been so good to chat with you, Meredith. As always, love talking to you and love having the opportunity to do it in this platform. So if folks are really intrigued by some of the things you talked about, the course, or they just want to follow you, where are the best places for them to kind of look you up? Yeah. So um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Kelly Corney. That's kind of where I share everything that I'm doing and getting up to. And then um, if you go to maven.com, you can type in my name, or if you just Google Maven and Brand Strategy for Innovation, you'll be able to find my course. And you can sign up on my page there to get on the wait list for my next cohort, which will probably be at the end of April. I'll be releasing the date quite soon. So would love to would love to have you there. Amazing. And one question. So if folks have a, a credit with their organization that they can apply toward uh, courses or learning, are they generally able to do that through Maven too? Yeah, that's a, such a great question. The majority of people who take courses through Maven use their learning and development budgets from their organization. Oh, so awesome. It's a great way to put it to use. Um, and the the ratings and, you know, the testimonials and ratings from courses across the board, just because of the type of learning it is, are super high. And the, actually, the last thing I'll say about this is the benefit of the type of content that's typically taught on Maven, including my own course, is it's the kind of things that you would like to learn at a university level, but isn't really taught there because it's more professional skills. Mm -hmm. So you're getting to learn from people who have the real world experience of doing this every day in their jobs and in really reputable positions and organizations and uh, teaching them to you at a, at a really high level. So um, yeah, it's a great place to learn. Amazing. Well, we'll definitely put a link to your course in the show notes too for anyone who's interested. Kelly, it was such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Meredith. All right, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed our chat with Kelly. We'll be coming to you next week with a new episode. If you like the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your podcast app. That really helps other folks find the show. And also consider subscribing to the Content People newsletter. The link is in the show notes. And that's it, folks. Thanks so much for listening. 